Well, let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Believe it or not, we're making progress. We're moving. We're moving forward. Acts chapter 4. And this morning we're going to focus on uh, verses 1 through 4. And this is on page 911 in the Blue Bibles, if you're using one of our Blue Bibles. Before we read, let me, let me just give some introductory thoughts. If, if for some reason you, you were to stop reading the book of Acts in chapter 3, you might be tempted to conclude that the Christian life is it's all about victory. Almost like a uh, beautiful, colorful flowers with no thorns or thistles to hurt you. The first three chapters of Acts present a very successful Christianity where the preaching of the word always seems to bring about the desired results. The fellowship is almost unbroken and miracles are just the norm. Acts chapters 1, 2, and 3 present a glorious picture of Christianity. However, as soon as you read chapter 4, that image of glory is interrupted. And from here on out, things won't be as peaceable for the disciples. Chapter 4 introduces us to the reality of persecution. Persecution. And what is persecution? Persecution, as we will find out, is nothing more than the fallen world reacting to heavenly truth. The fallen world reacting to heavenly truth, or to put it in more pictorial form, if this fallen world were an open and infected wound, then biblical truth is the salt that can cure the infection, but not without causing a painful sting. What we see in chapter 4 is the sting. And this sting caused by the salty truth is summed up in the first two words of verse 2. Greatly annoyed. Greatly annoyed. That's the sting. So here's the summary of chapter 4. Heavenly truth annoys a fallen world. Thankfully, chapter 4 also teaches us that even in the midst of persecution, Christians can respond with a world-conquering faith. So let me see if I can provide you with an outline for the entire chapter, which is, I think, provided in your notes. I want to give you the big picture. Here's the outline of the entire chapter. This is what we will follow for the next six weeks. First of all, we have a heretical reaction, which will be our topic for this morning. This is in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Then in chapter 4, 5 through 12, we have a spirit-filled apologetic. A spirit-filled apologetic. And then in verses 13 through 18, we see a revealing question. A revealing question. This is followed by verses 19 through 22. A foundational conviction. A foundational conviction. Then verses 23 through 31, a living faith, a living faith. And we will close the chapter in verses 32 through 37 with a new humanity, a new humanity. With that outline in mind, 
We are now in a position to consider the first section of this chapter. Please follow along as I read Acts 4, 1 through 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men who came to about 5,000. There are three main points that I want to highlight out of these four verses. First, we see proclamation in the name of the Lord. Proclamation in the name of the Lord. Second, we see hostility in the face of truth. Hostility in the face of truth. And third, we see triumph in the midst of trials. Triumph in the midst of trials. So let us consider the first point. Proclamation in the name of the Lord. First part of verse one. And as they were speaking to the people. Let me begin this subpoint by addressing an issue that I believe we often overlook. And that is the issue of human language. Human language. Notice that Luke says that the apostles were speaking to the people. What were they speaking about? They were speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were speaking about the kindness of Jesus and his power to turn sinners from their wickedness. Chapter 3, verse 26. In light of this, I want to make the following assertion. I believe God created human language primarily so that the glory of the gospel of his son could be spoken by human lips and heard by human ears. Ultimately, the reason you and I can speak words and understand them is so that we might lift our gaze upward and be transformed by the one who is glorious above all things. In this sense, human language functions as a type of conveyor, conveyor belt that carries the truth of Jesus Christ into our ears and from our ears into our minds and our hearts. If you think about it, God has ascribed tremendous amount of beauty and power to language. Consider how God himself created and sustains the world. How? By the word of his power. God said, God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. God said, let there be vegetation. Thus, God spoke the world into existence. There is, in fact, an amazing connection between God's spoken word in the creation of the world originally and God's spoken word in the recreation of man spiritually. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is on page 965 in the Blue Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want us to read verses 5 and 6. As we read this passage, consider the way in which the Apostle Paul connects creation language in a physical sense with creation language in a spiritual sense. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 and 6. The Apostle Paul said this, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ 
as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Herein lies the absolute beauty, power, and glory of human language. God spoke the world into existence, but God also spoke your salvation into existence. God made you a new creation in Christ by speaking light into your darkness, life into your death, hope into your despair. My brothers and sisters, my friends, God still speaks salvation into our souls. But the instrumentality of this salvation, the means by which he brings about this invisible work within the soul is words, human speech. And so here we find Peter. And the other apostles doing just that, they were speaking. They were speaking on behalf of the one who created the world, became a human being, died on a cross for sins, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and now rules from his throne. Jesus Christ, the God-man, exalted above all things. This is the glory of the gospel. Listen to me. The glory of Christ is such that it can even redeem our words. It can redeem our words. My friends, at no other point in your life do you use your speech for a greater and more exalted purpose than when you use it for the spread of the glory of Jesus Christ. So if you are a husband, a father, the head of a family, and you sit with your family at night or in the morning and you open the word of God, And through your words, through your speaking, you draw your children, your grandchildren, your wife into a deeper knowledge of Christ. God can take those words and do something amazing in their lives. God can redeem our words and use them for his glory. If you're a mom and you're having a rather difficult moment with one of your kids, you need to remember that God has given you a mouth in order to speak words of life to them. He redeems our words. And so here's Peter, a man who for the most part struggled With the use of his words, he was constantly getting himself in trouble because of his unguarded speech. But now in the book of Acts, we see a man who understands that even his tongues and his lips, he's making disciples through them, having witnessed the very ascension of the Lord. Peter now understands that even his speech must be used for the spread of the knowledge of the Lord. In and because of Christ, their words have been redeemed. And through their proclamation, God brings about salvation. Do you realize that most, more often than not, I really, I really don't know how much God is doing through the preaching of his word. We really are not aware of the glory of what God is doing when the word is proclaimed. Brothers and sisters, this is what truth should do in us. Truth and speech are intimately connected. Truth and words. In fact, words are the means by which truth travels into all the world. In this sense, words are to truth what the release valve is to the pressure cooker. The greater the accumulation of truth within the heart, the more the pressure for that truth to be released through your words. One Puritan, Richard Sibbs, said this, and I quote, Truth fears nothing so much as concealment and desires nothing so much 
as clearly to be laid open to the view of all. When truth is most naked, it is most lovely and powerful, end quote. This is illustrated very well by the prophet Jeremiah. He described the truth as a fire in his bones. If he didn't speak it, it burned within. So let me put a thought in your mind. What would the world look like if all Christians lived their lives utterly enthralled, captivated by the truth that Jesus is Lord? It is a strange phenomenon indeed that the world looks the way it does. Here's why. In Acts chapter 17, verse 6, Christians will be described, listen, as these men who have turned the world upside down. A small band of disciples were turning the world upside down. Let me ask you this. Why is it that today sometimes it looks more like the world is turning the church upside down? I believe this has happened at least in part due to the fact that we have lost touch with the truth that Jesus is Lord and what that entails. Brothers and sisters, the statement, Jesus is Lord, is not a psychological trick to get us excited. It is the reality that upholds the entire universe in place. These men were unstoppable because they were fully convinced that the one who died was also the one who ascended and sat at the right hand of God as King and Lord and Messiah. So they spoke, they spoke the word of truth. And I will say a little more on that later, but of course this doesn't mean that our speaking the truth will always be well received, which leads us to our second point, hostility in the face of truth. Let us consider our verse again, second half. Uh, verse one, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. I want to point out three things about persecution. First of all, the strange nature of persecution. I want you to consider with me the strange nature of persecution. Have you ever thought how strange Persecution is consider the passage in front of us. Peter had been speaking about a savior, namely Jesus in whom God has expressed his love for the world and in whom also there is forgiveness of sins. If you consider the message Peter had been preaching in chapter three and you examine it closely, you would come away thinking that's a pretty positive message. God loves and saves the world in the person of Jesus, his son. So here's the question. What's so bad about that message? Why is it that these men, the leaders of the temple found it so offensive that they took the apostles and arrested them? It is one thing for someone not to believe the message, maybe even mock the message or whatever else, but it is another thing to take direct action, violent action against the people preaching it. The bottom line question is this. Why does the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the most loving and hopeful message the world has ever heard produce such hostility? 
What is it about this message, the good news of salvation, that would cause someone to react and respond violently? Why not let these men just talk? Who are they hurting? They're preaching hope and salvation and redemption. Why did it bother them to hear about a free, gracious salvation? That's what I mean by the word strange. Persecution is strange. But the church has known persecution since the beginning. Here we are precisely where it all began. What is it about the Christian message that evokes such hatred from the world? Now this brings us to the theological nature of hostility. The theological nature of hostility. I believe the late R.C. Sproul was correct in saying that everyone is a theologian. Everyone in the world is a theologian. The only difference is there are good and bad theologians. But everyone is a theologian. In other words, everyone has a theology. Everyone in the world has a theology. And at the end of the day, all hostility against the gospel is theological in nature. Let me see if I can prove this to you. The events that are being recounted here for us by Luke are not just out of the blue. These events were long in the making. There's plenty of history to explain why the message that Peter was preaching was received with such hostility. So consider the people involved, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. This is a reference to the religious authority of that time, namely the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin. Now, during the time of Jesus and the apostles, there were four primary groups that dominated the religious landscape. First, the Zealots. The Zealots. These were known for the religious fanaticism and their willingness to go into extreme measures in order to establish the kingdom of Israel. They were prone to violence and insisted in the need for a political Messiah who would overthrow the Roman Empire. But then there was another group known as the Essenes. These were the separatists who basically removed themselves from the life of Israel and started their own religious sect known as the Qumran community located by the Dead Sea. They were behind the production of what we know today as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Then we come to the most well-known of these first century groups, the Pharisees. These men were the dominant group of the time. It is estimated that there were about 6,000 Pharisees in those days. Throughout the gospel, you see them constantly engaging in battle against the Lord Jesus. But for the most part, the Pharisees were theologically conservative. By that, I mean they accepted and revered the uh, entirety of the Old Testament. But there was a fourth group, which is the group we're concerned with this morning, the Sadducees. They were sad, you see. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. I have no idea where that came from. But anyway, the Sadducees. This group was not as numerous as the Pharisees, but they were quite powerful, quite powerful. Most Sadducees were wealthy and highly, highly influential in their society. They were politically, political compromisers who did what it took to keep the peace with Rome. And they handled the finances of the temple. It is important to know also that these men were theologically liberal. They were the liberal of the, their time. By that, I mean they, they only accepted the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, as the word of God. And they basically rejected the rest of the Old Testament. Because of this, they also denied important doctrines, such as the immortality of the soul. They didn't believe in that. The existence of angels and spirits. And divine predestination. 
Believe it or not, I guess we could say they were the original Arminians because they insisted on free will, free will. But at the top of the list was their denial of the resurrection of the body, which directly informs our text for this morning in Acts chapter four. And it also explains the title of this sermon, the hostility demonstrated against the disciples was motivated by heresy, meaning by a doctrinal teaching that deviated from true biblical doctrine. It was precisely their denial of the resurrection what prompted their charge against the apostles. Now, in our Bible, in the ESV, it says that they reacted, they, they were greatly annoyed. Now, there is another word used in other manuscripts in the Greek language that could be translated as being tormented. They were being tormented. In either case, the Sadducees truly despised what they were hearing from the mouth of the apostles. Plus, the language conveys the idea of something reaching a boiling point. They were tormented by the apostles preaching because that's all they did. Speak of the resurrection. Day after day after day, the Sadducees were fed up with it. They had had enough. Now, there were essentially two aspects of the apostles preaching that the Sadducees despised the resurrection and Jesus, the resurrection and Jesus. You know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they hated each other, but in this, they were united. They both hated Jesus. Now you put those two together, resurrection and Jesus, and they will hate you even more. They hated Jesus because during his earthly ministry, the Sadducees had tried to trap him in his own words. But Jesus always silenced them. You're welcome to read the account in Luke chapter 20, verse 27 through 40. Later on, if you would, and consider how Jesus defended and proved the resurrection to the Sadducees. Really, really masterful way in which he did that. But that's the historical background to the events that unfolded in Acts chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. And as I already mentioned, the hostility was motivated by bad theology. Their denial of the resurrection made them enemies of God himself and his truth. Let me see if I can draw a little bit of application here for us. I firmly believe this brief account serves as a sample of what all attacks on Christianity are. All attacks. All charges against Christianity, the gospel of the Lord Jesus, his authority, and the word of God are essentially theological. All attacks against God's ultimate authority take place because of a collision between true theology and false theology. All men in the world have an idea of who God is, what man is, what freedom is, and what the purpose of life is, etc., Etc. The collision takes place when man made, self determined ideas of God, man, freedom, and purpose come face to face with the biblical truth. The Sadducees had an idea of God, life, and death. And what the disciples were preaching collided with their theology. Consequently, persecution ensued. So yes, persecution of Christianity is always rooted in theology, bad, unbiblical, humanistic theology, but theology nonetheless. Persecution is a theological endeavor. I can say all this 
in an ultimate sense because of God's universal lordship. God's universal lordship. God owns the universe. Amen? Yes. Thank you. He owns the universe, which includes this world. Therefore, think about this. Therefore, God is always the final referent for what men do. We live in this world and his world. And what we do is always in relation to him. As Paul will tell the man of Athens in Acts chapter 17, verse 28. In God, we live and move and have our being. Specifically, everything we do as men, everything we do in the world is in relation to the one to whom all authority has been given, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, all things in human life are done either under the lordship of Jesus or against his lordship. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, verse 23, whoever is not for me is what? Is against me. Is there a neutral space there? No. You're either operating under the lordship of Jesus or against his lordship of Jesus. There's no neutrality in the middle. Thus, all things ultimately are theological because humanity cannot escape the all-encompassing nature of God's rule. You're either living for God or in rebellion against God. Now, one contemporary theologian set out to prove the theological nature of ideologies that eventually can lead to persecution and oppression of Christians by offering a a well-documented analysis of the massive transformation that has taken place in Canada over the last 100 years. He does this by giving attention to some of the political developments that happened in the early 1900s. Now, consider the following words. Consider the following words. I quote, we must not forget that we claim to be a Christian nation. This is Canada. We claim to be a Christian nation. We are a Christian professing nation, at least. And as such, we should respect the laws of God. We are responsible to a higher authority. The responsibility is that we should recognize God's law that is established and published in his own word. End quote. Sounds like a pastor. These words were spoken by a liberal Canadian senator during a debate on July 9th, 1906. Now consider these words about the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath. Quote, now the individual or the family, the community, province, or dominion, which observes the Sabbath day as it should be observed, is one that will prosper. And if we are to enter upon a downgrade by standing in defiance of the fourth commandment, we will go down as a nation by doing so. End quote. Also sounds like a pastor. But these words were also spoken by a liberal senator in the Canadian Senate on July 11th, 1906. Shocking. Shocking. The question is then, what in the world happened in Canada that created the current state of affairs in which it is now becoming illegal for Christians to even share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with people in the grip of sexual sin to the point that they risk going to jail. 
this contemporary theologian answered in this way, and I quote, there are, there are of course, long and involved political stories, court cases and proceedings which describe the process of this legal revolution, but the root cause of the change is not pragmatic, but theological, end quote. He's absolutely right. These changes in Canada over the last hundred years did not occur because of some sophistication in legal thought or some progress in scientific method. These things are purely theological. They happen because of man's rebellion against God's established order. And so men, when they go against God's established order, which is found here in the word of God, they have to come up with their own ideas of God, their own ideas of humanity, their own ideas of fulfillment, their own ideas of purpose. Why? Because man needs to have a system of belief, a religion. You know what religion is? You know what the word religion is? That which binds all things together. All men are religious. Yes, even atheists, secularists, humanists, they are religious. We will cover that. In Acts chapter 17, if we ever get there. Persecution exists because this world, listen, this world, as fallen as it is, cannot escape the necessity of forming a theology, meaning a view of God, man, fulfillment, and purpose. And so when the true God speaks to them as Christians proclaim his word, the truth collides with these man-made ideas, and then men are driven to wrath against the truth. So then we must ask, in all of this, as the world continues to change, what is the role of the church? What do we do? Well, we don't retreat. We don't retreat. You don't go home and close your door and just wait for the world to go to hell. You don't retreat. So here's the answer. What is the role of the church as the world continues to change? That's an easy answer. Notice this. The apostles did go to jail. They spent one night at their hotel there. They spent one night in custody. No resistance. They went to jail. So what's the answer? We keep preaching Christ and his truth. The consequences are up to the Lord. The consequences are up to the Lord. Now there is a third aspect of hostility and that is the wicked nature of hostility. We'll deal with this next week. It will be revealed in chapter four, verse seven, that for the rulers of the temple, these members of the Sanhedrin, there was another issue at stake, namely power and authority. They were worried about competition for authority over the temple. And we will see how Peter responded with a spirit filled apologetic, but we will explore that next Sunday. So the apostles are taken to jail for an overnight stay. For the first time, they are harassed by angry men since the ascension of the Lord. Thankfully, even though the outlook may seem somewhat dark for the apostles, we end this morning in a very encouraging note. In fact, 
I would argue that as Christians who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, hope should be a way of life, even when our present circumstances seem to speak against it. In verse four, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Luke inserted a small but very, very significant note. And it almost sounds like a something he wrote in passing, but it is no small truth. In verse four, we see the triumph in the midst of trials. Triumph in the midst of trials. Persecution or not, the gospel always goes forth with power. Persecution or not, the gospel always goes forth with power. As John Stott said in his commentary in the book of Acts, and I quote, the Sadducees could arrest the apostles, but not the gospel. The Sadducees could arrest the apostles, but not the gospel. Here is the glory of the gospel of Jesus, brothers and sisters. Not even the death of Christ's servants can stop the spread of the gospel because the one who sends his servants into the world lives forever. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the hope and power upon which the message goes forth into all the world. Ironically, then get this, the very message that got the apostles in trouble with the Sadducees, meaning the message of the resurrection was the reason so many people were converted. 5,000 men plus women and children. Amazingly, while the Sadducees were trying to send a message of power and authority by arresting the apostles, Jesus sent his own message of power and authority by converting people to himself. Because Jesus lives, because Jesus lives, there is nothing the world can do to stop him. Hence, the subtitle I have given the series in the book of Acts, Resurrection, Power Unleashed. If Jesus defeated death itself by dying and rising again, will he not also defeat persecution against his saints by giving their ministry success, even in their suffering. What a contrast we see in verse four. While the apostles of Christ are deprived of their freedom for a night, the spirit of Christ was absolutely free to continue his saving ministry, which reminds me of the following truth. It does not matter how dark the world may get at any given point in history, how evil the laws might become, how corrupt a government might be. Jesus, the Lord will continue his saving work in the world because neither his spirit nor his word can be bound. Our calling brothers and sisters, our calling is to be faithful, to be faithful in our families. If you're a husband, be faithful to your wife. If you're a wife, be faithful to your husband out of honor and glory for the resurrected Lord. We need to be faithful in our relationships. We need to be faithful in our jobs. Christians should be the best workers in the world because they serve the living God. Our investments, how we invest our money, the use of our time, the use of our words. And we have this confidence because Jesus lives forever 
Our faithfulness is not in vain. It's not in vain. So I leave you with a timely and convicting question. A timely and convicting question. I'm going to ask it in the first person. Am I willing? Am I willing to be annoying? Am I willing to be annoying? So here's a reality check. If we live faithfully to Christ, at some point, the world will find us annoying. The fallenness of the world means that this collision between truth and sin will continue. Will continue. But as Luke reminds us in verse 4, the gospel always ends with a note of victory, not of defeat. Hope, not despair. So I leave you with the words spoken by the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, which are very fitting as we bring this time to a close. And I quote, There is something in the world which is antagonistic to love. There are principles abroad which cannot bear the light. And therefore, before light can come, it must chase the darkness away. Before summer rains, it has to do battle with all winter. And to send it away in the winds of March and shedding its tears in the showers of April. So also, before anything great can have mastery of this world, it must do, it must do battle for it. There must always be a struggle before truth and righteousness can reign. But the troops of the captain of salvation may be none but the soldiers of the cross. And that slender band must fight alone and yet shall triumph gloriously enough enough shall they be for conquest enough by the arm of the helping trinity end quote so consider these words from the lord jesus in the world you will have tribulation but then he says take heart i have overcome the world let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this timely reminder that even in the midst of persecution, hostility, and oppression, the church continues to be triumphant because in an ultimate sense, this work depends on you. And for this, Father, we praise you. And so, Lord, help us not to become discouraged as we see the world around us change, as we see hostilities take root, as we see evil laws being promoted, both here in this country and around the world. For we know that this world belongs to Christ and the nations are his. So Lord, help us to take heart in remembering that Jesus, our Lord, has indeed overcome the world. And in this we rest. And we pray now that you will continue to guide us by your Holy Spirit to be faithful in our callings as we consider the hope of eternal life in Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.
Well, it is indeed a privilege this morning to gather together as one in Christ to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're celebrating what the Lord Jesus instituted over 2,000 years ago on the night he was betrayed. We are seeking to fellowship with Christ in the present as we anticipate what lies ahead in the future when Jesus returns as promised. Reading from the Westminster Confession, Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood called the Lord's Supper to be observed in his church unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself. 